Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm with Falcon Summer Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello. And freelance writer and critic for Art Nehru. I'm back. You're back. You're back. It's nice to see you. You're back. You missed our Tom, epic Tom Cruise discussion, which is now on iTunes and Spotify. We went through everything Tom Cruise except Far Away, which we still have not seen, but everything else we covered. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys just cruised right through it. <laughs> well, to update that, Glenn, you watched Days of Thunder after that podcast, right? I Nick did Sh- the second Tony Scott, Tom Cruise, fast as hell, needing, feeling the need for speed movie. It's weird that it's a better plot and better script than Top Gun, but it's not nearly as good just because the style and heightened, exaggerated craziness of Top Gun lends it an air and significance all of its own. That Days of Thunder is just lacking. Hot take. I don't think Top Gun is that Good. It's, well, yeah, well, Top Gun's not good. We discussed this last week. Okay, it's cool. All right. Not ingrained in pop take. culture, but it's a terrible film. Yeah. It's the only just, thing that's good about that movie is that scene when you've got that loving feeling. That's it. That is an amazing scene and really amazingly badly sung. For pre CGI era, the dog fighting scenes are really good. Oh, yes. Yeah. Actual practical explosions. I. I do wish we actually had just screwed up Top Gun because we could, you know, fight about it in the most machismo Top gun S way, but we don't, alas. But we are talking about gen- a lot of film news this week. You know, on the subject of movies about planes and giving the comment after we do the podcast of the film that we've skipped out on, I want to use this moment to spruik our Billy Wilder episode. If you listen to one episode from the archives, listen to the Billy Wilder one. I think we did a good job talking about a hell of a lot of movies. But after that episode, I watched The Spirit of St. Louis, which on the, on St. Louis, I should say, which on the show, um, I had just watched half of it. And I was like, yeah, it's okay. And having finished it, I don't see how that's a good movie. Like it's, it's like a Disney movie with Jimmy Stewart as the, the nice guy who talks to flies and except he's playing a, a famous Nazi sympathizer slash uh, bastard to his family. Which you can see the everyone can see the Philip Roth novels behind my head on my bookshelf. Right. There. <laughs> God, yeah. It, it was it was basically like it felt like fifties, sixties Disney movies, you know, those big budget bland family spectacles where it, yeah. it, it's just like it's all smooth sailing and you barely feel the complication and like yeah, anyway. I mean, anyway, yeah. this, I still it, remember it, liking the insular like setting, movie, like- but I do need to revisit it. The insular setting. The insular that, like, single setting and maintaining tension throughout that, I appreciate it. Not a lot of films are doing it that at that on, time. On paper, I appreciate that, yeah. And it, it definitely is a challenge for filmmakers, but audiences can decide for themselves whether it was um, pulled off here. I just felt like it didn't really have much of his personality in it. It, anyway. it kind of feels like, you know, how The Sound of Music is a Nazi movie, technically. But it's you mean... Not. You mean- Ooh, well, there, there, there are Nazis, but I wouldn't say that it's a film that is a Nazi awesome movie. <laughs> that, that, that's just something you yeah. say when you're, when you're... I mean... Er, er, can like something Paul, my dad would have said when we were watching it on TV for the 15th time. Yeah, Paul Liesel, can you imagine your first boyfriend when you're 16 turning out to be a Nazi? Like, that's awful. God. She, yeah. She deserved better. Um, yeah, so that's the sounding music. It's not a film we really have much to say about. What we do have a little bit to say about is what's happening in the news this week. There's a few subjects we're covering. First of all, the death of Lynn Shelton, who passed away only in a few days past and following quite a stealth filmography, many of her films have screened at various indie festivals, including the Underground Film Festival. Uh, also, what we'll be getting to shortly is Ritz at Home. The Ritz cinema chain, Lido, Cameo, Classic Cinemas, Elson Rick and Ritz in Sydney have launched, I think this is the first time in Australia, this is something like this has ever been done, but they have launched their own mini streaming service where they will be showcasing a number, have already showcasing a number of titles that have screened that were at the Ritz and at other cinemas. And it's quite extensive. We're getting into that at the moment. And we also want to talk first up about the big film news of the week, which is the closure of the, it's not understatedly iconic event cinemas, George Street. It's the cinema I have been to more than any other in my life. It is a center point for film lovers, casual and dedicated alike. And it's hugely consequential news for the film community in Sydney. Yeah, I'm kind of not sure how it's going to work without event cinemas, George Street. But there used to be Greater Union, George Street. Before that, it was the Hoyts Greater Union Complex. It is the central location for a lot of film festivals and most notably the Sydney Film Festival. 
Yes, it's a ma- hell of, surely a major impact on Sydney, which uh, potentially we don't know the state of Sydney Film Festival next year come the new United Cinemas, which have took down the Opera Keys. But it's the Japanese Film Festival, the Russian Resurrection Film Festival, the Sci-Fi Film Festival, the Smartphone Flick Fest. They're all the homes at Event Cinemas, George Street. Before we go on to talk about um, what's happening in the centre of Sydney, we just want to note a couple of the events that are happening in Sydney this week. The Sydney South African Film Festival has gone online. They'll be screening online until May 26, as will the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, which is screening online until May 24th. Static Vision are going to their seventh week of online film streamings and discussions, which is taking place on Friday evening. A Filmonic Melbourne, the short film online film night, is having their next film night on May 26th, next Tuesday. You can get your films in. And in terms of what is coming up, Move in Bed have just rebranded and relaunched as Move in Car, which is a drive-in cinema. Uh, these are proving popular in the States because they are COVID conscious, as Move in Car have stated. So that's something that's coming up as of May 28th, as is SFF going online and we'll be talking about the Sydney Film Festival program as well as the We Are One Film Global Film Festival which SFF participating in coming weeks but for the moment yeah uh, the home of George Street I've been going to George Street for 13 years now it's not just that all the media screenings are there it's not just but it's the central point where I always meet up let's oh we want people want to come in from all over town let's just go to George Street sure there are other central cinemas and sure there are places you can go but it is such a crux for the lifestyles of film goes well it's a multiplex but unlike most multiplexes which are built into fairly anonymous shopping centers this is in the middle of the city so it still feels like it's an occasion we're going to the movies you know you've got all these bars and restaurants and clubs around it you've got the the um town hall and the qvb short walk away it feels like you're going out when you go there and it gives the the event of going to the movies a sense of importance in a time when people are questioning a lot what is the point of cinemas when streaming is, is becoming more and more paramount in film distribution? I mean, uh, I don't know how it will work, especially, I mean, we mentioned Sydney Film Festival. Yes, in terms of uh, organizing things. I think doing the event, George, and the state double was probably a staple for a lot of people to squeeze in as screenings back to back. And I don't <laughs> think we'd be able to have back to back from now onwards. As we'll, you know, I think people have to be more selective in what they pick and choose to see when Sydney Film Festival comes back in whatever form it does from next year. So it'll be very difficult, especially given the geography of Sydney. How do we even yeah. manage to do that? That was my first impression when I was hearing these, uh, the proposal last year to build this new cinema complex, sorry, this new apartment complex on George Street. And they said, oh, there's the option for a boutique cinema in there which is something they say because they knew there'd be a lot of opposition. This is my theory anyway. They know that there's a lot of opposition to the idea of losing George Street because it was the last cinema in, in Sydney City, really. We used to have reading in Chinatown. We used to have the Dendy Chinatown Martin Twin. Place. I was about to get to that. Dendy Martin Place was before my time. I was just starting to think about wanting to go there when they were announcing its closure. We basically don't have anything within the city. The closest we've got is Dendi Opera Keys. So as Virat says, that does make it really hard when it comes to Sydney Film Festival. Festival warriors like ourselves, we are a niche, but I think we make up a sizable portion of the tickets that are sold for the film festival. The people who try and see as many movies as possible are only able to do that because of the state and event cinemas, George Street being so close together. I imagine the use of the state theatre as the centrepiece for Sydney Film Festival is pretty non-negotiable. It's what gives it the sense of grandeur, right? But it works as it does because close to that, you've got two screens at least running at George Street that can hold a large capacity of people. Uh, if you, you can quickly jump between state and George Street. If they, they're still using the state, the closest other cinema would be Dendi Upper Keys, which is always a nightmare to get to during Sydney Film And Festival. arguably Bondi Junction, which because is of vivid. Uh, difficult to get to at the best time, especially with heightened public transport. As well as Hoyt Broadway, closer in terms of distance, but possibly harder to get to because you don't have the train running from Town Hall to Bondi Junction. Um, but yeah, no longer would you be able to basically plan your day around the city and jump between these two screens. I just can't see how the kind of um, crammed film festival where you see as many films as possible will work. 
um, the, there wasn't just the, the two cinemas being used there. There was also the hub, which is pretty much right between the State Theatre and Event George Street. If a multiplex cinema elsewhere like Bondi Junction or Entertainment Quarter or Broadway was used as the central hub, it's always going to be a nightmare to get to the state. Um, or it'll be even harder when they spread the main uh, area where the films are screened out to the fringes of the CBD somewhere. It'll be even harder to get to places like Randwick Ritz or the Cremorne Orpheum. Now, in terms of the hub, the hub can still take place there. It'll certainly have less foot traffic because people will be seeing less films in the center of the city by virtue of the size of the cinema that is effectively there. Um, they have spoken about a boutique cinema. This is promising. However, there's going to be nowhere near the capacity of what they're indicating for what is necessary for the volume that's in the film festival and other like festivals, including the Russian Film Festival, as an example requires, they fill out multiple cinemas in any given opening night or other screenings. And when we talk about us seeing films and films back to back, it's not just us. Casual film fans who otherwise wouldn't so much engage in film culture in Sydney and Australia use the Sydney Film Festival in that time of year as an opportunity to go and pack their schedules in and take time off and see multiple films. They simply won't have the capacity to do that given constrictions of public transport and the amount of space that is available in the center of the city to see films if you think about how it works in melbourne it works as it did in sydney because they've got so many screens close together within walking distance i think you really need that for that to be that community vibe to a film festival but it's more than this and it's not doesn't just affect the festival scene one of the best film events i've ever been to was the man max free road premiere five years ago this week and at that premiere they had giant cars drive up to the center of town it wasn't just a spectacle of seeing this in the center of the city and everyone being able to get there it's that that film premiere and a number of others also packed out every cinema in the cinema complex it's if we want to host international premieres of major films hundred million dollar plus projects and be a center of film around the world we need venues that can host these premieres and be on the scale of the chinese theater in los angeles or the leicester square theater in london event cinemas georgia is that theater yes more park is great but it's not as central and it doesn't have the capacity and it's yeah it's actually considered to be really out of the way it's the kind of place that you wouldn't be there unless you have a plan to do something there so it's not just for the festival scene, it's for our broader film culture, which this will have an impact on. Certainly major distributors will be less likely to seek out um, Sydney as a primary venue to showcase and premiere the big, big tentpole features. I mean, and the other thing, I think we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, critic screenings as another example. I think one of the best aspects of Avenger Street was the ability to actually, you know, as I think us as critics got sort of private access to that. The actual community vibe that you can in a big kind of, you know, uh, big kind of event thing where each movie and distributors could really transform that vibe, that kind of upper part of the theater into whatever that movie scene was, whether it was Jumanji or Wonder Woman and stuff. <laughs> so you could kind of have a more fun time at the movies in an old school way, which you can't have at private small theater at screenings which kind of do feel like you just go in and see a movie and come out. It's not as fun as, you know, mingling with other critics and, you know, dressing up in your Wonder Woman attire and turning up or having a midnight Star Wars screening. Those are the things that I'll miss. I loved that. I've always enjoyed seeing um, events there, whether it be at critic screenings or at other events. But you can't run those in conjunction with other major things at a smaller venue. Um, and that's been shown. So this is a loss for people who will otherwise be exposed to those great events and other films just incidentally by being there. Um, I've been going to George Street for 13 years. I've seen hundreds of films there. I actually managed to trace the first film I ever saw there. It was Zodiac way back in 2007. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and then, oh, sorry, Harry Potter film next. Uh, I think it was Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, it's like your favorite bar closing down where you, yeah. just, you go to have the beer. I think I might have you beat. I think I saw the host there. Nice. Wow. Which would be a couple of months before Zodiac, I reckon. Okay, Virat, can you? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know exactly which film I saw, but I came to Australia in 2008. So that's a no. And, yeah, but like, you know, but uh, the multiplex boom hadn't happened in India. So there were still single screens that were there in India. So the very first multiplex experience that I could think of was events in George Street. So I didn't know the multiplexes and what they were and how they existed before, uh, you know. So I think that is a sad part about it that, you know, I, I would just, I was like, wait, what? There were like 
three cinemas out here? How, is that even possible? So, like, in 2008, the, a young Virat was, like, completely confused by this concept that this was even a thing that could happen. Because the way it was done in, in India was, like, the old movie palace idea, right? Where you've got one yes. screen and a massive audience. Yep, yep. It's very, very much like Hayden Orpheum style. So, you know, very, you know, just one cinema. You had the old school... Uh, curtain drawing as well so like you know it's very much like that or at least till that point so yeah it's... i often heard people complain about george street about oh it's dirty it's run down but i still really enjoyed going there just for the atmosphere uh, yeah it was great i don't I do think it's burned i think i think it was always clean it wasn't me too i never found it it, it really wasn't state-of-the-art modern but i didn't need that i just wanted the big screen to see a movie on and a good surround sound and i had that and good trivia at the bar Here's a thought. How much more difficult is it going to be for critic screenings to be run for us without that's George the, Street there? That's what I'm, that will, I was thinking. It's a, because it's a central Sydney location where everyone can get there after work by 6.30. Yes. If suddenly you're telling people to go to Broadway, Bondi Junction, etc., it's just going to be a lot harder. Well, I'm hoping that they can reopen for Tenet or other films by July and that we can get together. I don't know if we'll be able I hope to. We, yeah. I don't think we're not getting Tenet in July this year. I Is doubt it? Tenet will happen in July. That's another oh, discussion. Any, any feature. I would like to go back to George Street when we can before the construction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know no. what will happen. We'd like to say goodbye. goodbye. Yeah. We've had, had, had some up. great... We, yeah, we've had some great moments at George Street. like so, to say goodbye. So many dates. So, uh, so many... Just meeting up with mates there. So many friends I ran into who... Wait, did you just say so many dates? Yeah, it's a great... Have you taken a date to event George Street? I've... This is a story. I think sure. that's a fairly standard thing. Yeah, like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, I haven't always picked the best film, but uh, the, the venue was nice. Yeah, the cinema is what matters. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We'd, meet, we'd meet at um, QVB, at the Queen of Statue, and walk down. It's a standard meeting place all through uni. Oh, yeah, and you know, it's, and it's, a, it's a big enough cinema to try your date moves, so it's, it's fine, I think, yeah. Right, just the, the big yawn with the arms stretched out. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> do that at any other cinema. Don't leave Event George Street. <laughs> cool. so yeah. we'll, we'll continue to cover any new developments um, as regard to Event George Street. In spe- to moving across town to Randwick, big news in the cinema community, Ritz at Home. Ritz and the crew behind a few festivals that take place there, the Fantastic Film Festival Australia, the Junior International Film Festival, the Children's International Film Festival, have launched Ritz at Home, an online streaming service, which is subscription-based, very similar to the Ritz, except you can see films that have screened there. Some are festival favorites, some are American icons, the different categories, including LGBTQI cinema, the female gaze, um, classics, and it's quite a decent selection in terms of the ones we've talked about probably in the past year, Portrait of Lady on Fire, Parasite, Reefer Madness, um, and so yeah. the classic stuff is on there. It's like, sure, I actually haven't seen it, so I would like to get They've into got, that at some time. Got an archive Byzantium, of... I think, which is also another crazy, really interesting. Which movie is that? Uh, Byzantium. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The oh, um... Phoenix is there. So good. Yeah. Yeah, and it's they, actually a really good weird selection. Art section. <laughs> Yeah, there's a whole section on Jewish and Israeli cinema. Menashe is there. Hearts and Bones. I haven't seen Hearts and Bones, but it seems the one they're pushing hardest. High Life, The Guilty, well, Loving Vincent was great. Well, it's because Hearts and Bones was supposed to release right in April and did yes. it because of the closure of cinemas and was planned to screen at the Ritz. So I think this is, giving it the spotlight is kind of a favor to the, the film distributors who are losing out on a lot of income right now. And it was supposed to be Higa Weaving's kind of return to form in terms of him getting another meaty role to chew into. Kind of. An Australian film at that. But yeah, <laughs> this is similar to what um, American art house cinemas have been doing, which is becoming a place that hosts rentals from distributors who had just released um, films or were about to, but have decided to just go straight to VOD during the pandemic. They've been making deals so that the cinemas get to have by the license and make money from every rental yeah because they realize that they're interdependent on each other so it's good to see distributors and cinemas so it's good to see something like that happening in australia as well yep a lot of the films are ones that have been had small runs at rich cinemas either in a traditional theatrical release or in, a, in the festival scene it's just a way of staying in touch with the crew staying in touch with the cinema even going with friends who i have a friend at work who she watches a ritz film every monday night we're gonna watch one together we're talking about watching loves with a couple other mates this weekend just nice to keep up that relationship with your local and then go back and go straight into things come july or whenever hopefully soon when things are back to normal ritz ritz has definitely become that complex right now i think with the venue or street closing down 
rich and doing the bars and the food complex there. So I think you're a gorgeous premier. Yes. Yeah. So it might, might take over. Oh yeah. Ritz, um, especially just the design of, um, sorry, just the street it's on, on St. Paul's road. It really (laughs) gives the promenade coming up to a premier, this nice vantage point, the, the not too high shops lining the streets and the way the sun comes in. It's an easy area to romanticize. Long may the Ritz live. You touched on something talking about cinemas reopening. What do we think about Tenet supposedly coming out in July? Why? I think it's ambitious. I I think Nolan, I think even Nolan doesn't have enough clout to convince the studios to take a major loss in a lot of jurisdictions, given perspectively that a lot of places, even if America and or others open, won't open. They'll yeah. want a massive push for a film that was made by the guy in Interstellar and blockbusters like Inception and The Goddamn Dark Knight. I think so too. Um, apparently, cinemas won't be able to open until after August in LA. And they make so much money out of films from LA, the LA market. So I doubt Warner Brothers would allow it to open. There's also questions of piracy, right? If you open this movie elsewhere in the world, pirated copies leak around, camera rips. It's obviously not the same as the IMAX experience Nolan wants you to have, but if people are just sick of waiting for it, a lot of money could be lost to that. There's also the question of what if it's not good? Don't get me wrong. I'm sure it will be pretty good. And by the sounds of it, the studio uh, uh, confident in it. It was reported in, I think, a deadline on The Hollywood Reporter. They said, we've heard it's as amazing as Inception, quote, but uh, you never know how the audience is going to respond to something. It does does look pretty great. But even then, I think there's sense in just waiting for the right time and doing it the old-fashioned way. If that is the intention, that this is definitely a big screen experience, then it is makes sense that we wait until, you know... And I think people will go out to see it. I think that's the thing. We've been starved of the movie-going experience for such a long time that once everything does reopen, people will definitely go out to see a movie by Nolan. If that is a poor film, I think so. It It has just people will not take a risk if that's the consideration. It just has to be a big pull movie, which and this is, I think. (laughs) Yeah, potentially. Um, I've I've seen people saying that you know we've been watching screens for months. Actually, when the lockdown ends, people won't want to go to the cinema straight away. They'll want to go to a bar. They'll want to go to a restaurant. They'll want to hang out on the beach. No, but there's a reason that this film is the one they're pushing. The reason this film might actually do it was because more than any other imminent release, Nolan, the imagery behind Tenet, evokes the idea of cinema, big screen, big screen spectacle, on it, Inception, Dark Knight, IMAX. You have to see it on the biggest screen as possible. We get it. So that's respectively yeah. Tenet come July. Especially after Wonder Woman 84 got, got delayed, which was the other big screen spectacle that people were kind of banking on. Yeah, that's the thing. If Tenet gets delayed, then they're going to have to delay Wonder Woman again because they're both Warner Brothers and they won't want to compete with themselves. There's a flow-on effect. Oh, yeah. So that is Tenet. Um, so just before we wrap on Ritz at Home, just to note, one, if you're going to watch one film for this recommendation, I'll make Searching for Sugar Man about Sixer Rodriguez, the amazing singer from the States who had a unique career in South Africa, especially doing apartheid South Africa. I remember him growing up. It was one of the first, some of the first music I ever listened to. He had a hugely huge impact on the culture and zeitgeist there. Um, my dad and mom would play the records, um, so as did my granddad. And that my family shop actually features in the film. If you look down the street, down the street from the record store, oh, nice! It's wonderful and uh, a beautiful tribute to an uh, incredible titan of music. Well, Virat saw something I still haven't gotten around to seeing yet for Sama, which I've heard very good things about. And uh, that recently was playing, sorry, that recently was starting to, I think, show at the Ritz as well as Dendi Newtown before its release was cut short. Yes, for Sama is a wonderful documentary. And uh, I really wish more people try to catch it because I think it's one of the few documentaries that, that really does balance uh, what's going on in Aleppo right now and how things got to that point really well without it being a heavy-handed political narrative. I think it's a very real story and it's a very humanistic story rather than it being a political story, which a lot of documentaries out of the region have become. So it's not on the nose as a lot of people think. It's a very human touch to it. It's also very funny, very touching, very endearing, and not only just very heavy. So I think it's very different from a lot of those kind of narratives that are coming out of that region. So that is Ritz at Home. We have a few minutes left. Um, and this time, and going into the podcast, we'd like to talk about the filmography of Lynn Shelton. Before we do, just to note, 
Um, another figure in cinema and television who, who passed away in this, this week was Jerry Stiller, father of Ben Stiller, and who is best known for audiences, I be- to most audiences, I believe, as George's dad, Frank Costanza on Seinfeld. You know, George, we're going to Del Boca Vista. And Festivus, which I observe every year, the feats of strength. Um, I can't do it nearly as good as him, but he was spectacular and he made a lot of people laugh. He had a, a very good innings uh, making it to his 90s, I believe. Uh, so 92. did 92. Michelle Piccoli died today as well, age 94, star of a lot of legendary films. Um, the, the lead in Goddard's Contempt, star of Belle de Jour, worked with a lot of the most important art house directors of the last 50 years. He, I also really recommend, uh, if you want to see him commanding the screen, La Belle Noisseuse, where he plays a painter, and it's a, a very long, in-depth study of the painter's relationship with his muse. But um, yeah, he, he was one of the, the legends of French cinema, a guy with a really distinctive, strange look, but huge presence. So... Uh, yeah, we wanted to talk a little bit about the death of Lynn Shelton, um, which for us was the most shocking, tragic death of the week. Um, because yeah, she's Chris had, and I have been more familiar with uh, her work, and I think yeah, um, she, I think she still had a lot more to give. Her last film was actually my favorite film from her that I've seen. I think she had immense talent as a director of improv. She comes from the mumblecore movement. Um, Virat's actually familiar with some of her early work that I haven't seen. Yes, uh, my favorite film of hers is My Effortless Brilliance, which is a wonderful dark comedy, which I don't think a lot of people have seen, uh, which is criminally underrated. And I feel that's part of the problem. But I feel what really made her stand out for me was the fact that being an indie filmmaker off merit and also being able to produce and put her vision and get that accepted in a time where it's big studios are really the one calling the shots. I think is a big, big deal. And her well, work has been consistently good. And actually it's the consistency over her filmography which really stands out for me. Well, yeah, that's, that's what Mumblecore was really all about. People saying we don't care about the obstacles to you know, getting our visions out there. It's just like, let's just get down and do it. Let's scale things down to something that we can achieve and make movies on the weekend with friends. And um, let's make movies about our ordinary lives where small little things come up and, and create big turmoil and, and the films about people talking to each other. But yeah, she, I think was incredibly good with improv. As I said, um, her breakout film hump day, I think is, is really, really funny and interesting. Um, I think a great cringe comedy, which is also um, disguising something heartfelt and much more low key than you'd think. Um, Hump Day was really interesting because it came at a time when pop culture was obsessed with the idea of the bromance and, you yeah. know, like laughing around about, ha ha, I'm, you know, we're not gay, but isn't this so gay? Hump Day was a film that I think saw that zeitgeist and then dared to take it to its natural conclusion. It's the anti, I pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Well, yeah. In, Hump Day, Hump Day well, was like- I, I was willing to go the rest of my life with that, but thank you for that movie. Thanks for that. <laughs> Hump, hump Day was that kind of thing, that, that like post-Apatow thing, except if, if you have the courage to say like, okay, what if there are actually some bi feelings involved here? Yes. And I think that's the wonderful part about even- And that's probing that. Pro- the, and there's a lot of those undertones which are probed really well as well in Your Sister's Sister. Well, yeah, she, she, um, she was, a, was bisexual and yes. a lot of her films deal with LGBT issues and, and some of them have- bisexuality in prominent position uh your sister's sister which is about a, a very strange menage a trois is one of those films um it, it's a really good again uh, strongly improv based and it's also comedy drama ritz at home so it's screening as part that's of right that. it's at ritz at home um your sister's sister was probably her most commercially successful film because it's got emily blunt in it probably but <laughs> yeah your sister's sister goes to a similar place as hump day with like cringe comedy that gives way to something really heartfelt about the relationships between the characters. I think she had a really strong handle on Definitely. character dynamics and I mean, um, a I way was, of yeah. bringing out these sort of ambivalent multi-dimensional character interactions. I was uh, having the discussion with Chris uh, before the episode and how talking about how uh, comparing her with Jim Jamush as a good counterpoint and both coming from the Mabuko tradition, but well, Jamush is, Jamush is like proto-Mumblecore, you know, yes. like Mumblecore before Mumblecore yeah. was a thing. But uh, what I feel Lil Shetland is probably got a better handle on characterization, whereas Jamush is probably more... Jamush is more of a, yeah, it's a hard, 
comparison to make because I think Jemosh is is really like a cinematic, yeah. you know, big stylized visual style, whereas Lynn Shelton's films, not to say they're not cinematic, but it's more about using the tools of cinema to go really in depth with characterization. She'd spent a yeah. lot of time directing TV, uh, I think. And her dialogue writing is it's very solid. In fact, I've never felt that the characters actually talk like real people, which yeah, is a well, complaint what, that I have with just most movies is that they, they feel like characters and they don't talk like real people. Well, what, what she, uh, she could do with cinema that she couldn't do in her TV work is to let the camera go for hours, which is what she would do, That's, um, and work with the characters to develop the dialogue as they were filming yeah, until eventually, yeah. yeah, you reach a point where it just comes across as incredibly natural. And it's a rare talent to be that good at shepherding improvisation and shaping the story and the characterization on the fly. Um, I have, to my discredit, I haven't seen a, her filmography, but what I am familiar with is her television work, including um, one of the best episodes of The Good Place, season one, episode 11, when we're more going, when you really delve into this idea of if we're doing something because we good because we want something from it, is it in fact good? And this would be a theme that The Good Place would center on and return throughout the series. And this was at the time when it was growing and getting really good. But the best television work I've seen her do is an iconic episode of Mad Men from season yep. four, which is the one- One of the best. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna do a slight spoiler here, but a female char- a character has an abortion in the course of the episode and it's very rare in Mad Men that first of all, you see two female characters have a scene all on their own. I don't know which, and it's a scene that takes place in the waiting room between two of the main female characters. I don't know to what extent this was improvised, but in a series that is very cynical and at times um, uh, necessarily and deliberately shallow, it's in such an empathetic and warm sequence, which was necessary, which lent the show what was needed for its longevity. And it's one of the standout sequences, moments um, in the whole series. And it stands up there with the best. So I give her full credit for that. And yeah. In terms of her television work, I also remember, I think this year, we had Little Fires Everywhere with Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington as a drama series come out. Uh, and uh, she's directed four episodes and basically the major arc of the, of the, of the story. And you can really see, especially the crux of the narrative is about how two mothers from different socioeconomic backgrounds are dealing with adversity in different circumstances. And her sense of drama and control and characterization is what really shines through because otherwise this could be a very hackneyed effort given the premise, but this is such a real understated kind of vibe to it that is not seen in contemporary drama today. Mm. Uh, I mean, contemporary drama is all about heightened drama and I feel this is really paired back drama that we don't get to see from American television, especially. Mm. It's, it's very much closer to the UK style of, you know, drama rather than the American style, which is about tension in, you know, in everything else. But this is all about pairing back and taking it slow. Right. You, you saw one of her most acclaimed films as well. Um, uh, Laggies. I never got around to that. What did you think? Yes. Uh, I feel this is actually one of the best, Secure nightly performances, which doesn't get talked about. Because once again, I don't think people have discovered it. So if there's one thing that people should take out of our discussion, I think, about Lynn Chantel is maybe go and discover her filmography and you'll find that most of them are gems. Well, yeah, I was going to say that because my probably, I mean, there's recency bias coming in here, but probably my favorite film I've seen from her, and it was my favorite film at Sydney Underground Film Festival last year, was Sword of Trust. Uh, she made this film starring Mark Maron, who she was in a relationship with when she died. And it's a return after a few years of more traditionally scripted films, including one on, which is easily accessible on Netflix, actually, called Outside In, which I think is a very solid little drama. But it was a return to the improv comedy style and probably the most out-and-out comedy of the films she's made. I found it really funny. Uh, it helps to have uh, someone who's gifted a comedy as a comedian as Mark Maron in the cast, but I found it really funny um, and really charming. Laugh out loud funny, while at the same time not abandoning the truth of its characters and never being, you know, like too loud. The the balance of the tone is just right. Sort of Trust is about 
um, a guy from a pawn shop and his dim-witted assistant helping a lesbian couple sell a sword that they've inherited that fringe conspiracy theorists on the internet think proves that the South actually won the Civil War. I, okay. I'm amazed that with this, this car, with Mark Maron leading it and that premise, uh, it, which to me is like sold, yeah. it's so hard to see this film and, and no one went to, to see it. But yeah, I thought it was a great comedy. I thought it, it showed she was really on track to, to do great things. I think um, I think we all need to just rectify that and just go and see kind yeah, of go, movies. Go out and check out her work. Um, yeah, your sister's sisters on Stan, um, Hump Days on Tubi, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, Outside In is on Netflix. I hope you can rent sort of trust somewhere. It should be somewhere like um, yeah, like iTunes by now. But yeah, heart really goes out to Mark Maron. The reason why this was such a shocker for me is, as I said, she just did a, a really good film. Um, her TV directing career was, again, in um, on a really positive upward trend. And she was young. You know, she was only 54 years old. And to suddenly die of an un, unknown blood condition... It's just yeah. crazy and tragic. And she seemed to be a very genuine person as well, because she's done a few improv stand-up specials as well, where she's with, hosting with Mark a Marin. relationship with Mark Maron. And so it, it, it came across as a very genuine kind of insight, because you know how a lot of male comics do this trope about trying to get my wife, about, about yeah. you know, my wife, or, you know, the, the John Mulaney kind of aspect to it. Uh, so, uh, so it was refreshing to see that from a female comic perspective and see that that could be inverted and how that subverted expectations that way. But her observations about their life was not necessarily a dig at Mark Maron. It was actually more about the relationship together and how that's brought them together and blossomed. So even through that, she was observant and sharp enough to not rely on usual comedic tropes, but do something different with them as well. Something that I've heard coming out um, in the aftermath of this tragedy really is um, a lot of people saying that she was very widely loved in the film community. Yeah, she was, as you say, she was known for being really genuine um, and really down to earth. Talented, I mean, got amazing work through television and film, which is a rarity. these days, either you're a film director or a TV director and you get... Well, really- more and more people, actually, yeah. especially people in Lynn Shelton's sort of position, I think, are turning to TV work because um, she said it helped her sharpen up her skills because of the time limit and the um, really getting to the core of something quickly. But also because, you know, it's hard to make films like she was doing. It, it's good to have a source of income to finance that the personal projects. I, I think that's the biggest thing. She is an out-and-out indie filmmaker and we don't have enough of those in a studio system. So I think to value that and see the value in how to actually be true to yourself and your vision in these times and still produce consistently good work is very difficult. But also just a storyteller that's attuned to the essence of character who made pretty life-affirming, genuine films with interesting concepts um, that were crowd-pleasing without being sort of cynically engineered to do so. Um, that Yeah, there was a genuine warmth to that work and it's something that American cinema needs more of. And Definitely. so it's, it's a big loss. And I really hope that 2020 gets better because it can't get any worse. <laughs> get any worse. Yes. I mean, we're all, we're all out here waiting for 2020. Talent because uh, we're just like... Yeah, it, it's enough. bad from a film point of view and it's also bad from everything else <laughs> that yeah. our show isn't based yeah. around. The Everything is bad. The meme that's gone viral this week is the one where someone will post a picture of two pictures of a film or different films, me at the beginning of 2020 and now. Oh, yeah. And there, yeah. There's, some quite, there's some quite fun ones. My favorite was the um, Mill- Millicent Shapiro from uh, Hereditary and then the second... Oh, I saw that. The poll. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's oh man, it's dark. It's dark. This, this is going to be my decade. And yeah, now look, look oh, guys, man. this decade started with cats. Let's. Not you know, I, I'm I'm very uh, pro. I never used to be pro this, but I'm now very pro saying that the decade starts with tw- with 2021. 
I've always <laughs> argued with people say, well, actually year one was the first year. I'm saying, well, no, 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 that's just semantics. We market in terms of 2020 as the start of the twenties, but now I'm, I'm casting all that aside. I'll say, <laughs> let's just start it again. You know, I, I don't want this to be the year that sets the tone for the next decade. These are the guys. These are the guys in 2001 who were like, "No, no, the fireworks need to happen now. They need to happen yeah. now." Actually, uh, you yeah, were right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm with you guys. I'm with you. Yeah. We're, we're all about 2020. We're all about odd-numbered years. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I don't know because we might have the our own recession. We might be headed for a Great Depression. Who knows? Depending on how the economy comes out. Everything's all up in the air right now. Anything <laughs> could happen. Seriously. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, good news. Things are looking up. Hopefully, yeah, I don't know. I don't, if we I, say it enough times, it, maybe it'll come true. <laughs> look, look, there are th- things that I find quite enjoyable. Uh, the habits of doing my weekly watches, weekly trivia, which we're all doing later tonight. And I hope there's, I know those things will just continue. And where we used to do, as an anecdote, uh, we used to do trivia every week, at, every month at 1989. We've started, which is a bar in Newtown. We've started doing it weekly now. I walked past 1989 a couple of times this weekend. They're doing a lot more business. They're obviously still active. And I can't wait to go back in there and just continue that momentum, what we're doing, catch with the people we've seen uh, over Skype, yourselves included, over the course of the past few weeks. We, we can be positive. Um, people are getting out there. People are being cautious as they're supposed to be. And those who are still holding the flat in the curve, you're doing the right thing. But there's an out. And hopefully we're all headed towards it pretty soon. And tenant. Or whatever is going to play at Event George Street. If it's Tenet, I'm fine. That's great. If it's um, Alfred the Chipmunks 3, I'm probably going to go watch it. If it's the only, no, I, I won't go watch that. It's if it was the only chance to see a movie at George Street, would you go see Alvin and the Chipmunks, the 40 extravaganza in 40X? Oh my God. Okay, I, no. I don't. No. They no, wouldn't do that no. to us. You wouldn't do that to us, would you, George Street? Would you? I mean, like, I hope they that reopen. That would be a massive troll, though. I mean, that that's. Surely the world can't be that cruel. I mean, I don't have the resilience. Oh, I have a lot of evidence right now to the contrary. <laughs> no, but I don't, yeah, seen some, I don't yeah. have the resilience left in me anymore that something that I love is going to turn around and flip the bird at me. Be like, haha, you thought I was going to be nice to you after shit time. Sucks to be you. Here's something more to dump on your shit. But then 2020 happened and it turns out the world is exactly like that. But, let's, but we can have good things happen. We've, we've all had good memories at events in George Street. We can make those memories happen again, sure, okay. even if it's one time. I'll, I'll, I'll cut pineapple for you, Glenn, and bring cut pineapple and serve you if something that happens. Is this the I'm first reference to the pineapples on Film Fight Club? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Uh, you mean the elixir of the gods, Chris? Let's let's be frank. Let's be honest about how great Thanks it is. Thanks, Costanza. It is. <laughs> Can't stand ya. That, that wasn't right. That was extensive. Oh, here. The bro. No, no. The man's ear. <laughs> <laughs> he, had some, he had some line readings. that Because he started as like a minor character and then they made him a regular character. He was just because so- he's an incredible comedian. Oh, the scene where they, they remake, they read the parody Platoon and it's all about Frank's cooking. There <laughs> <laughs> oh, was some... Oh, the, the, there was some pure gold. And he actually, the other thing, it's not a show I liked, but The King of Queens, he had a long-running role on that. And he was good, even if um, the schmuck from, I now pronounce it Chuck and Larry, uh, Kevin James, is that his name? Kevin James, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't care for him, but Jerry Stiller was funny in that show. Mm. Yeah. Oh, Jerry Stiller. So, so, so yeah, we're ending on a, on a happy note that Jerry Stiller was funny and we're ending on a happier fun times, I hope, yeah. Yeah. So next week it's going to be fun. It's going to be a new week, new perspective. With your fight, because you're going yeah. to tell us what a fight about. You do have to tell us. You do have to tell us what we should fight about. Twitter.com slash filmfightclub AU or Facebook.com slash filmfightclub. You can use those tools to send us a message. Yes. And we've been honoring your commitments because we've actually taken up your We've taken a few challenges. And, and you know, uh, some of our best uh, recent fights have come from that, including Billy Wilder, which that's is true. Also when we watch, yeah. throw us a curveball like a film series, like I don't know, Hannibal or Die Hard or something out there, something we oh. haven't covered at all. Or, or you know, but you're calling Hannibal and Die Hard a curveball, but like, man, if it were like <laughs> that's pretty mainstream. That's if, if it were like, um, 
I was I haven't seen it. The Japanese series like Prison, Scorp- Prisoner. No, you know the, what the, the Japanese. Do you, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like a Japanese female prisoner exploitation movie series from the oh, 70s, yes. 60s. Oh yeah, yeah, like something like that. Uh, so, or some anything that Sian Sano has done, essentially. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I, I just there like are some I don't think Die Hard and Hannibal are obscure films. No, no. You know what? <laughs> you should definitely recommend Sian Sano's uh, vampire series because Glenn hasn't seen it because Glenn was someone who did hey, Tokyo Vampire Hotel. Yeah, he did yes. you at, George, at, uh, Sydney, at Underground. the Sydney Underground Film Festival in the midnight screening, and he ran away. And before I could turn around, he was not there, and I was stuck. I was, it was stuck. A I really enjoyed 10 PM it. 10 p.m. screening. I didn't want to get it at 2 a.m. I, I watched another movie and then hung out at the bar and had drinks. Well, I have no regrets, even if you know, it wasn't that great. If you want to really relive these, the film fights of your Swiss Army man is on Ritz at home. Yeah. Yeah. Go back I saw and listen that. to Everyone versus Glenn. That was a great episode. The past few years. Yeah. Oh, Paul Dano. We should do Paul Dano movies. Like I, I do a bunch. Of, I do have a you guys bunch. seen Love and Mercy? I yes, have. It's I have. great. It's yeah, it's all right. Love and Mercy's great. Little Miss Sunshine. Um, obviously there will be blood. Ruby Sparks. Oh, yes, I love. Which we're watching Sparks. next week in our movie watch. Have you seen it, Glenn? I have. I, I really like it. It's a good movie. Yeah. Had a couple of weeks in our weekly musical because Andrew Lloyd Webber has stopped his the shows must go on because the shows aren't going on because they played Cats last weekend and that was the end of it so we have to have something to replace that for our we, weekly we, we could watch. do the Manic Pixie Dream Girl series Elizabeth Town the, 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 yeah, the 500 Days of Summer the Ruby Sparks the Elizabeth Town and yeah. you know, you know um, comes into protagonist's life changes him for the better and then leaves uh, Scott Penny, Pilgrim Penny Hall <laughs> Uh, yeah, what else is Manic Fixie Dream Girl? Paper uh, Town? Oh, what's the te- yeah, I was that's it, that's it, Paper Towns. Paper Towns. Terrible, <laughs> terrible movie. I hate that movie. I haven't had dedicated also, time also episode to how bad that movie act, is. But it's okay. You know, there was a list, I remember um, hearing about this years ago, and then I, I remembered it when we were doing the Billy Wilder thing, and I looked it up to confirm. There was a list, I think Nathan Rabin, who coined the term, did a list of Manic Pixie Dream Girls. In movies, and he put Shirley MacLaine in the apartment. No, what? no, no, <laughs> right? She's not a manic pixie dream girl. Firstly, she's, she's a precursor to it. She's a precursor, but she has more character complexity because she has more problems because she's harder to deal with than a manic pixie dream girl is. I would say. Yeah. And she's if anyone the, the person who's a bit more like manic and zany is the Jack Lemon character. If anything, like, you know, they have a genuine relationship that, that is fostered. And, and, and the movie ends with the prospect of them having agency to do whatever they want. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. establish the fact that... I, could yeah, it's buy that that she, I can buy that it's a precursor to it, but, it, but it's lacking the worst things about the Manic Pixie Dream she's Girl. She's not Zoe Deschanel. She's not the new girl. What are people talking about? Oh, yeah, it's lacking... We said that, right? It's lacking the things that we hate about the the subgenre um <laughs> so even though i could say yeah it's sure it's a precursor to it, it it's still like I, actually, I wouldn't categorize it there but now i'm actually very invested maybe we should pick our favorite manic pixie dream girl movie and, and <laughs> do a series <laughs> i really don't have one what maybe ruby sparks but ruby I sparks is an anti-manic pixie dream girl movie so oh but then there's not much choice. I hate Paper Towns. You, you, I you're going like to pick Scott Pilgrim, Pilgrim, aren't you, Chris? You're going to pick Scott Pilgrim. And that's a great movie. That's a great Scott Pilgrim is a great movie. You know, I probably like, like it the least of you guys. I thought it was a decent movie that runs out of steam. Okay. I thought it was, starts great. I thought it's fantastic for the first half or so. I, I want to pick Night in Soho needs to happen. To Release Last to... Night in Soho to Vincent Mistrucci. We'll watch oh, that. yeah. Last Night in Soho. That's been delayed indefinitely. Actually, speaking of films that are... Oh, well, those ones that are coming out. Speaking of films that are coming out, um, there's two coming up on Netflix in the coming month. One is the Eurovision film with Will Ferrell, uh, Eurovision Fire Saga, Will Ferrell and our favorite Rachel McAdams, which looks great. They released the first footage of it over Eurovision this weekend. It looks very funny. I think Rachel McAdams nails the tone more than Will Ferrell, unsurprising, but we're going to cover that. Rachel McAdams is so underrated. She's a great, she was the best thing about game night and people still don't, there's a lot of good it. things about Game Night, but she, but she was the best thing about Game Night. She's a really funny comedic actress. 
which has not got any chops or a comedic talent. I don't know how that's happened. Yeah, it's it's sad. Such a struggle for actresses in Hollywood in general, I think. It doesn't matter how talented you are. Well, we'll cover it. And the next thing, oh, so the new Spike Lee film, the trailer just got released for an end. Yeah, of- Five Bloods. Yeah, looks bloody good. Chadwick Boseman. Where, where is that coming it out? That June 26, it, I think it is. It was going to premiere at Cannes where Spike Lee was to be president of the jury. Apparently he'll be president of the jury next year. They've promised the jury that they picked will get to stay on next time Khan is run as a traditional film festival. So apparently we have Snowpiercer as a series coming out on Netflix this month. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard it's nothing like the movie really like tonally okay. completely. Di- it's tonally is like a wacky, it's like a wacky cable TV sci-fi show is what I've heard. It's not, okay. but not wacky in the way of the movie. I well, watched the film a couple of months ago. I have no real desire to see a series right now. Uh, what else? I've, I've seen the new Damien Chazelle produced jazz series with uh, Julia Colleague. I heard it was a lot, the, his episodes are great, and then once he stops directing, it goes way downhill. It, it, everything was bad. House of Cards. Okay. It was just bad. House of Cards, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and there was not enough jazz, and the way it was done was also very. It was the worst elements of La La Land and Whiplash. La La Land was together. not a good movie. All of it were worse. I liked elements. it. The beginning liked, was good and the end was good. The, the only one who liked La La Land here, I guess. Um, I, I like I musicals. Didn't... Do you guys watch Mindhunter? Yeah. Yes. Right. That's what happens when David Fincher actually commits to a show. Yes. Nominal stuff. What Hold, else? I think... Hold, Holden Ford uh, from um, Jonathan Groff from Hamilton and Glee. He's so bloody good in this playing against type. What else mm. is coming out? Uh, oh, we have on Friday. It's Friday, the new Kumail Nanjiani movie and Lupita Nyong'o, I think, right? Ah, is that Friday? Lovebirds on Netflix? The is that Lovebirds. coming out? Right. Yeah, I yes. guess we can cover that. That seems to be a fun film. It seems to be light, which is what I need at this point in time. Speaking of Lupita Nyong'o and light, and Australia, Little Monsters is out on for $2. On <laughs> and you should go watch that because that's outstanding. And it's one of those underrated Australian films the past couple of years. And no one seems to have seen it. That was the biggest flex that I've seen you make. Yeah, pretty rough. Speaking of lights, Australia, and Lupita Nyong'o. Yeah, yeah. Okay, a, okay. a great seg- my, my segueing skills are exceptional, Virat. Little little monsters, yeah. Just go find some classics on streaming. It's what we've been doing. Yeah, but no, um, things are coming out. I am going to watch every Tom Cruise film we didn't watch for last week. You, yeah, you started with Days of Thunder. Legend is next, and um, Vanilla Sky. I have. Oh I'm, man, I'm a completionist. I've got to do it. Uh, I was watching Rage after we did that episode, and Kokomo by the Beach Boys right. came on with the cocktail clips. Oh God, I. Uh, uh. <laughs> That, was that for, written for the right? It was okay. Yeah. Rage. 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 Yeah. So you're listening to SCR, just to clarify. No, wait, this is the podcast. So you might, you might be listening to 2SER. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, oh, or the podcast. Yeah, Rage is probably on. It works. No. Um, hmm. Yeah. Well, yep. this has been fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, we'll be, yeah. Pick a fight with us. Please do. Pick a fight. Yeah. So this has been. Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, and Virat Nehru. <laughs> we should have coordinated that slot. I should. Have we should have. <laughs> Anyhow, that's the three of us. We're Thanks for listening. Club. Enjoy movies, and we'll see. You'll hear us next week. We'll see you at the cinemas if they exist. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Bye-bye. Good night. <laughs>